Hey folks, this is John Lawrence coming to you with another episode of From the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. I want to bring you a podcast on Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, or ERAS. Enhanced Recovery programs are reshaping the way patients experience surgical care in the United States and around the world. In many places, the ideas found in Enhanced Recovery programs have been around for years, so many of you may have already incorporated some of these concepts into your practices. Things like perioperative opioid sparing or opioid-free analgesia, carbohydrate loading with clear liquids up to two hours prior to general anesthesia, and goal-directed fluid therapy, among others. Comprehensive enhanced recovery programs shape every phase of perioperative care, from pre-hospital planning through 30 to 90 days post-op. Enhanced recovery programs have resulted in decreased mortality, decreased length of stay, improved functional recovery, and lower healthcare costs. To help me unpack this topic, I reached out to Dr. Tim Fitzgerald, a surgical oncologist and expert in enhanced recovery programs. We just recorded a three-part series on enhanced recovery. In part one, which is this episode, we explore the background around quality improvement in healthcare, where we're currently at the United States, and how enhanced recovery programs can help us move in the direction of best practices and improved patient outcomes. In part two, we do a deep dive on ERAS from pre-op through post-op with special focus on anesthesia implications. And in part three, we come back to discuss the concepts of frailty and the perioperative surgical home. Tim Fitzgerald is a surgical oncologist and the director of surgical oncology at Maine Medical Center and Maine Health. He's an associate professor of surgery at Tufts University School of Medicine and specializes in complex gastrointestinal surgery. Dr. Fitzgerald has published and lectured extensively on enhanced recovery after surgery. Currently, he's helping facilitate implementation of an enhanced recovery program at Maine Medical Center as part of a national study with 100 medical centers participating in implementing enhanced recovery programs. And with that, let's get to the interview. All right. Well, Dr. Fitzgerald, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I am so excited to chat with you today. I feel like I've gotten the inside scoop on ERAS because I've heard you speak on this a couple of times. So uh, I appreciate you being here. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a exciting time in, in surgery, and I'm happy to involve you and your colleagues in the care of the in the care of the complex uh, gastrointestinal patients. Great. So tell us a little bit about your background as a surgeon and your interest in enhanced recovery programs. So I'm a surgical oncologist, and I've spent most of my career doing complex gastrointestinal surgeries. I started out as a private practice doctor at Michigan State University and uh, spent the last about 10 years as an academic surgeon at East Carolina University. And it was there that I really became interested in quality. Uh, I start, when I started at East Carolina University, we had a very small complex gastrointestinal oncology program. And we grew that uh, to about 10 times the size it was before. Um, and as we grew that, I knew that as the volume increased, the, there's a, that's associated with quality. But what I came to find out is there, there's a lot more to high quality surgery, and it doesn't involve just what the surgeon does or how much the surgeon does, but about the system. And a system that's built to incorporate the best practices, is built to learn from itself, and is built to continue to grow over time. And that's really where I started, was just starting a high volume program and then the realization that there's more to high quality surgery than just doing a lot of it. You've got to incorporate best practices and continue to change as you learn from yourself, from your own system and from others. 
That's awesome. You've mentioned before that enhanced recovery after surgery is a protected term. Is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, trademarked. And so what, what's, the, what's the acceptable term that we can use? I think a lot of people are moved to using enhanced recovery program. An enhanced recovery program. As opposed to enhanced recovery after surgery. But it's interesting, if you look at the literature, John, enhanced recovery after surgery, enhanced recovery program, fast track, um, perioperative surgical home, uh, evidence-based practice, the enhanced recovery programs have all these different names. So if you do a literature search, it can often be difficult to find all of these enhanced recovery programs because they go under different names. But the idea is the same, is that uh, is that you're incorporating best practices in the entire perioperative period. That's right. That's great. And there are multiple national and international associations for enhanced recovery as well, people that's, that are working on this. That's true. This started with a, with a uh, really innovative surgeon from Copenhagen named Kalet. He started doing this in the late 1990s and had unbelievable improvements in, his, in outcomes. And it was that nucleus uh, with him and several other surgeons across Europe that they formed their first ERAS society. Uh, and as you pointed out before we started talking, now there's an American ERAS society, but it's the Europeans that really have shepherded this program in. That's great. So let's chat briefly about quality. Um, you mentioned, you've mentioned before that, you know, healthcare providers and physicians, anesthesiologists, CRNAs, we used to get paid for doing stuff, just for, for putting people through cases and surgeries and that kind of stuff. But now payment is shifting to be based upon quality. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's really, it's an exciting time in medicine, I think. What we've been before, I'd say, we've been paid just for producing widgets, you know, making, doing things and getting paid for them. I think we'll continue to get paid for doing things, but there's a shift now to just not just paying for what you do, but also paying for the quality of how you do that. And it started really in the in the early 2000s when when uh, we started to look at the concept of high performing programs and centers of excellence around bariatrics and pancreas surgery, uh, lung cancer, coronary artery bypass graft. Uh, and that has continued to evolve. And there are multiple non-government organizations such as Leapfrog, um, U.S. News and World Reports, ProPublica, that rate us as systems and as individual providers. And now the government's got into it. And it's really started strongly with the Affordable Care Act. And uh, part of the Affordable Care Act uh, looks at something called QRSs or QRURSs. I forget the acronym. And they, but, and they keep changing in, in what I've heard. Yeah, now it's MIPS. Yeah. Uh, but, but the idea behind these MIPS and the QRSs is that they're going to look at individual practitioners' cost and quality. And I've heard a lot of people speak on this, no matter what happens to the Affordable Care Act, and I think that's, uh, that's up for debate, that the push towards improved quality and decreased cost from from Medicare is not going to go away, and I think we'll see that mirrored by the private insurance companies. So it's gone from a system where we get paid just for doing, regardless of how we do, to a system where we'll, we'll continue to get paid for doing, but we'll get penalized if we do this at a lower quality. And I think it's the right direction. And regardless of what happens with the Affordable Care Act, that direction uh, from CMS and from our insurance providers is not going to reverse. 
Yeah, yeah, that's an important point to make, which uh, validates why these programs that are focused on enhanced recovery after surgery or enhanced recovery programs, they've been shown to have such positive outcomes on the patient experience that they can only be good in terms of your quality data, your quality reporting, those kind of things. Yeah. It's a very interesting story, as, as, as you know, and probably most of your listeners, that we do a poor job of changing when new data comes out. That is, the, we, rare, we often takes 15, 10, 15 years to incorporate new data into clinical practice. And sometimes that's never incorporated. And I think we saw it earlier in just aspirin after MI, how often that wasn't done, or heparin after MI, or, or programs around stroke and, and thrombolytics. And those are things I don't know much about. However, I do know a lot about this enhanced recovery. And that's the same idea, is that these are practices that have been proven to improve patient care, bundled in uh, something that not only, you know, used to we only paid attention to what happens after surgery. But it's not just what happens after surgery. It's what happens when you choose the patient for an operation, how you prepare them for surgery, how they are cared for in the holding area, what happens during anesthesia, because that, that also has changed over the last few years. And then then what happens after surgery. Um, and these enhanced, programs, enhanced recovery programs, as you pointed out, there's great literature to show that patients are less likely to die. They're less likely to have complications. They cost less to the system, and they have, they're more likely to go back to their own homes if they, if they are treated in an enhanced recovery program. And yet, despite this compelling evidence, People aren't doing it, and part of it is that we don't like change. And uh, and there's an enhanced recovery program that's come out of the American College of Surgeons that we've joined here at Maine Medical Center, and another center uh, in our healthcare system has also joined this effort. And this is the idea of I'm projecting this on to the program, but uh, so I, I'm speaking for them. Uh, but I think the idea is that is that these things haven't been adopted. That there are high functioning centers around the country like where I came from where we adopted these ERAS, but it's not been adopted widely. They chose 100 high functioning hospitals across the country to, I think, to demonstrate how they could take their protocols and they could be incorporated in a wide variety of settings and then the lessons learned so that we can adopt this more widely. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and I want to talk more about the specific rollout of that plan here at Maine Medical Center here in a few minutes. So we've touched on a lot of things. Let's let's go back to the quality reporting and, and that data. What are the implications for hospitals and individual healthcare providers from some of those institutions like LeapFrog and ProPublica? How have those things influenced the way that we're perceived as healthcare providers and how we do our jobs? So I would say, I think that ProPublica and LeapFrog are, are, ex, are the two I would choose because they are, the, in my view, the extremes of it. LeapFrog is evidence-based consortium of, that started in Detroit as a desire for healthcare, for the auto industry to decrease their healthcare costs, but have become a national evidence-based um, forum for rating hospitals. Yeah. And ProPublica is a is um, uses publicly available data to make 
conclusions about hospitals and providers that, that may or may not be appropriately risk stratified. So, But these are the kinds of things that show the increasing scrutiny. And I think the U.S. News and World Reports is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, uh, interesting. That uh, That is, we are rated, not by LeapFrog, just rates the hospital on A, B, C, D level. And uh, I think what you'll see uh, is that Savvy patients are going, and savvy insurance companies are going to look for leapfrog rated A and B, uh, and the patients are going to be um, steered towards those institutions because they've adopted evidence-based best practice, and things like ProPublica and and uh, U.S. News and World Reports are out there uh, for patients and providers to look at, and I think that will also drive care. That is, if you could see that your hospital was rated highly in the region for providing cancer care, you could find that on the web, it's going to drive where you go. If you got on ProPublica and you found out your hip surgeon was rated as low functioning, you may change where you get your hip surgery. So I think these things will drive drive insurance companies and patients to different healthcare systems. And uh, And that's important for all of us, whether we're private practice, uh, surgeons or healthcare providers, or whether we're working for the hospital. If the hospital is less busy, we've got less work to do. And these hospitals, I mean, these these ratings really have an impact on how hospitals respond. I mean, th- these are influential uh, organizations. U.S. News World Report, Leapfrog, what they have said about different healthcare institutions has shaped trajectories for hospitals. Absolutely. I don't think Pro- that ProPublica will be. The leapfrog, when they say uh, that you need to have these safety practices embedded, uh, Maine Medical Center listens yeah. because because they recognize that's important. And I think it's also, and I probably, I may be an outlier in this regard. I like this. I think <laughs> we all think we're doing a great job, yeah. right? Just like a, we all think, there was a survey of drivers, they had to rate themselves as, as whether they're better or or less good than the average driver. And it may not be surprising to you, but 80 to 90% of people rate themselves as above average. Uh, so we all think- <laughs> Which statistically bumps the average a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so we all think we're doing a great job. But what ProPublica does, or, and LeapFrog, and US News and World Reports, and this MIPS and the quality things that come from the federal government is they force us to really look inward and not say, oh, I know I'm doing the best. Oh, I read, so I, and I'm good, or I've done this the way I've always done it, and my outcomes are great. It makes us really look at it. And they force us to adopt best practices. So I, I think it's a, I would say I think it's good. Well, I, I agree with you. It's been fascinating in to see the way that different practices from, from very small medical centers, you know, two, three ORs, to big level one trauma centers, and how people adopt evidence-based practice and uh, their responsiveness to that. So I think if, if there's uh, influential groups out there on a national level that are bumping quality in a, in a positive direction, it's only good for patients, it's only good for our healthcare system. I agree, and it, in my experience has been in the, and I've been looking at quality and writing about quality for probably just a half decade now, that when you improve quality, you decrease cost. When you improve quality, you decrease patient morbidity. So not as always the right thing for us to do at a hospital system level or at a national level. 
at a hospital level uh, for us as providers, even in a selfish way. It's the right thing to do for our patients. Yeah. And the reason that I get up every day and come to work um, uh, is because I value providing high quality care to patients and I value good outcomes. And I think most of us come to work for that same reason. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, let me ask you about um, something that I've always found interesting. So just to emphasize this point you made earlier, it takes 10 to 15 years for new evidence to get incorporated into general practice, which is, a, which is astounding. It kind of blows my mind. How, how are we doing in the United States? It, it always seems like when you read uh, you know, comparison reports of the United States on an international level, we spend an exorbitant amount of GDP on our annual healthcare expenditures, but yet we rank so low in terms of outcome-driven data on a national scale. So how are we doing, and how are we doing specifically with uh, the incorporation of ERAS uh, protocols across the United States? I think we struggle. I, we struggle in the United States compared to places like Canada uh, and the Netherlands to incorporate evidence-based practice. Why, why do you think that is? I think it, it, is, it is the good and bad of, uh, of American individualism. Hmm. You know, that is, uh, no one, you know, I think people are reluctant to be told what to do. And part of adopting evidence-based practices is using guidelines and structure to guide our care. That is, there's a whole idea in, in the quality literature that inappropriate variation leads to poor quality outcomes. And it really started with, with Deming, or at least my view of it, it started with Deming in in Japan after World War II when he redesigned the manufacturing industry. And you don't remember this <laughs> because uh, I'm a lot older than you, but in the 70s, the, the United States auto industry was, a, was in disarray because they made poor quality vehicles and they were losing market share to the Japanese who were making high quality vehicles because they incorporated best practice, they standardized, and they got rid of inappropriate variation. Uh, and I think that's part of, I think it's okay to have variation, but inappropriate variation is bad for making Toyotas or um, Corvettes, but it's, and it's also bad for patients. That's not to say that we shouldn't have appropriate variation, that everybody's an individual, but there are some basic evidence-based principles that should be baked into how we care, patient, care for patients. And I think there's resistance to do that. That is the, the no one's going to tell me what to do mentality. I think what I would think more is that we provide a basic structure that incorporates evidence and then you vary upon that structure when it's appropriate. I, th I think that's one of the fascinating things that I've come across when I've read about enhanced recovery programs is the need to, uh, you know, the, the data is strong. The data is out there. It's, it's been out there for some time that these kinds of programs make an incredible positive impact, which I want to talk about your studies down at East Carolina and some of the, some of the national literature. Now, looking at, you know, reduced lengths of stay, reduced mortality, reduced cost, it's strong data out there. But there's this other component of implementation of this best practice that really deals with the provider's receptiveness and openness to this and shifting away from that, well, I'm a physician or I'm an advanced provider. I, 
I should know what's best for my patients. <laughs> and moving into this direction of, well, no, it's okay, it's okay to adopt best practices and to systematize some things. And in your conversation on of appropriate variation versus inappropriate variation is fascinating. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's it's okay to be told what to do to a certain extent. You, you know, you don't, you can't blindly follow the guidelines. That is, you know, as part of the enhanced recovery we'll talk about is, is giving patients a carbohydrate-rich drink and not starving them. Well, yeah, that's okay unless your patient's got an NG tube in or they're vomiting. Of course, those patients, you're going to starve them by necessity because right. they... They can't take those carbohydrate-rich drinks. But uh, I had uh, a patient on the enhanced recovery protocol here, uh, and the, the patient was getting ketamine post-op, and one of my partners was rounding on my patient over the weekend and stopped it because we because that's a general anesthetic. You, so I think it's that balance of... They were know, on a very low-dose sub-anesthetic ketamine yes, infusion, I would imagine. Which is, the, which is which there's great evidence for, but it's right. a change in practice. Right. So it's... it's Appropriate variation, that is, if your patient's vomiting, yeah, you're not going to give them a carbohydrate-rich drink because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. An inappropriate variation where you say, well, this isn't the way we've always been doing it. It's new, so I'm going to go back to the way I've always done it. I think as practitioners, it, um, I know surgeons best. And the surgeon that says, I do it this way because that's how I trained, is someone who becomes progressively more dangerous over time. That is, if you don't incorporate new learning into your practice experience plus the new knowledge that you gain, you become progressively uh, more dangerous. Now, this is a fascinating point, and I, and I think it applies to CRNAs and anesthesia providers as well. What you learned in school is is good. It's it's that that's hopefully the state of the art information in, in science at that time. But if that's all you go on for the next. 5, 10, 20, 30 years, the idea that you become progressively more dangerous, holding on to those old ways of doing things is, is super interesting. Yeah, I stole the idea from Gandhi, uh, and he, he said that wisdom comes from knowledge and experience. That is, if you're just doing, you never you get better at doing, but you may not get better outcomes or better quality. And if you're just learning and you're not doing, you also will never truly get that wisdom of practice that, you know, we, both you and I, we know those providers uh, that you turn to. I have a senior provider in my group that I always go to when I have a question because not only is he a busy surgeon, uh, he reads and understands. Yeah. It's interesting. I just actually picked up um, Anders Erickson's book titled Peak. And it's, uh, he's a career psychologist who's looked at peak performance, but it, the primary tenet in that book is just what you said, is that just doing something goes back to this idea on 10,000 hours of practice that's been popularized by other media, but it's not just doing something for a long time that makes you an expert, but it's the deliberate practice. And in healthcare, as you just mentioned, that's the ongoing incorporation of new evidence, new literature, new techniques, and consistently looking at how can I actually improve and not just keep doing what I've always been doing. Yeah, and, and to go back to the point of the enhanced recovery, that's exactly what enhanced reco- a good enhanced recovery program is, is it's a learning system. Is that the program that we institute, that we're instituting right now for colorectal, and then we'll institute it for other GI, maybe gynecology and vascular surgery. That's what we're gonna start today. 
but it's not a static document. It's not a static way of doing things. It, it, ideally, the system will get wisdom over time, and that program will grow, and we won't just incorporate what was the best in 2017. When this is going on in 2027, around the time I'm getting ready to retire, uh, the, the program will have grown and have improved yeah. by learning from itself, by doing, but learning from the world by incorporating new best practices. That's great. That's great. So let's drill down a little bit more on quality and how to plan quality initiatives, and then we'll shift gears and we'll unpack what is ERAS specifically. And then I want to talk to you about some of your research and the ways that you've implemented this at other institutions. So uh, what, what are some of the concepts on measuring quality? Uh, say a surgeon, anesthesia team, or hospital wanted to begin to measure their outcomes how would they start looking at that? You've, you've mentioned a process that talks about structure, process outcomes, plan, do, study, that kind yeah, of stuff. Well, so, that, I, so that's a great question, and that's an important concept in quality. And I was fortunate to do, I did a year and a half long quality program through the American Medical Association uh, when I was at East Carolina University. And it, one of the things they start out with was the reason they had the program was to teach people how to teach quality. That is, we're taught how to do medicine, but we really don't understand how to do quality. And that's it, it, those are important concepts. And some of the key things that I took away from that is one that if you're going to implement a quality program, you need to measure what you're doing, what you've done, and how it worked out. That is, and there's a... Uh, guy named Don Avinian from the University of Michigan, uh, who came up with the basic three measurements in any quality program. It doesn't matter if that, again, if you're making a Toyota or you're doing a Whipple operation. You know, it's, it's structure, process, and outcome. The structure is measuring, do you have what you need to do it right? Do you have the right surgeons? Do you have the right equipment? Do you have the right hospital setting? The process is, um, the the things that you do in that program is that when you feed patients, what kind of anesthetic you give them, what antibiotics you give them, what's their recovery like, how is their convalescence, you know, how much fluid did they get? Those are the process, and then the outcome is what we focus on because it's the fun part. Did the program do what we intended it to do? Did it decrease cost? Did it decrease mortality? Did it decrease complications? Did it improve patient satisfaction? Did it get people home stronger and faster? So when you do a quality program, it's important that you measure it. And then what do you do with that measurement? And there's an idea also from Deming uh, that's often called the Deming Wheel or the Plan, Do, Study, Act. And that is that you plan it. And that's what we're, we've just done. You plan the program. What are going to be your structure? What are your structural changes? What are your process changes? And then you do it, and you accept, I accept, that it is imperfect, mm. that there's something wrong with that program or something that we can do better. So you do it, and then you study it. Then you look at those outcome measures. Not only do you look at the things you think good might happen, you would look at maybe some things that might happen that would be bad. That is, if you're restricting fluids, are more patients going to go into renal failure? If you're sending patients home on day two instead of day 10, are they more likely to come back to the hospital? So you study both intended and unintended consequences. But if you don't do the study the structure and process, you don't know, did I do what I said I was going to do? Right. And then did it have the outcome I expected? And if it didn't, 
I'll look back and say, did I, can I do these other things better? Or are there things that I said I was going to do, but I didn't do as well as I thought? I think you mentioned a, an interesting point when uh, you said you plan and you do, and then you accept there may be inherent imperfections, even when you're beginning a program. And I think that's something to keep in mind, which we'll loop back on maybe at the end of this talk, again, touching on some of the challenges and resistance that some people have to adopting quality improvement programs like ERAS. Sometimes you need to start with some baby steps maybe and, and get a basic framework and then grow from there to incorporate more and more principles of the program to, to help people change, to help people accept the program and to kind of begin the initial steps and gain some early success and then improve that process along the way. Yeah, it's a little bit hard with ERAS because there are so many components in that program, depending on which one you look at, it's going to be between 15 and 30 changes. I think for this program, I expect we're just going to jump in. And yeah. the nice thing that we have here is that this these ideas have been vetted nationally through the American College of Surgeons. So we're not implementing, we don't have to review all the literature and decide what we're going to do. We've been given that basic framework. But I think they understand, or they should understand, what works at Johns Hopkins may not work at Maine Medical Center, that, that we'll need to tweak that program to make it work for this institution and for our unique patient population. Yeah, yeah. So let's unpack a little bit of the research that you did at East Carolina, because I think this is fascinating. So these are published in some articles that we'll throw up on uh, the show notes associated with the podcast. But tell us about, you did a, you did a study uh, where you implemented an enhanced recovery program, but you did it somewhat as a silo, as a, as a sole surgeon in a group of practicing surgeons in colorectal surgery. And uh, your partners were somewhat of a control group under traditional care for those patients, and you made some changes to your care. Tell us a little bit about that study, how that how that went. Yeah, so uh, thanks, that's a great question. You know, I transitioned from private a private practice to academic surgery because I really, um, enjoy the process, the academic exercise. And at East Carolina University, I had done several studies just looking at our developing a high volume program, and particularly in pancreas surgery. Uh, and pancreas surgery is often kind of like a, I don't know, for lack of a better analogy, like a canary in the coal mine. That is, if you can do pancreas surgery well, you're probably doing gastrectomies, um, and liver resections that are less physiologically demanding, you're probably doing those well as well. So we developed this complex GI practice and looked at our pancreas program. Before I got there and my partner, they were doing you know five to seven uh, major pancreas resections a year. And when I left, we were doing about 70 major pancreas resections a year. And we noticed in a study that we did, uh, we looked back that not only did our mortality rates uh, state our state mortality rates stayed stable. We operated on sicker, older patients. Uh, they were in the hospital for a shorter period of time. And then I also be, wondered what, what were the implications for overall quality. And using a uh, complicated quality metric, we found that quality also improved. And from that, I became interested in okay, what what about the cost of care, and what were the things that Im, Im, impacted the cost of care, and the what I found is there were two things that strongly impacted the 
cost of care for pancreas patients, and I'm sure this is true for other patients as well. The type of operation they had, whether they had a Whipple or a lesser pancreatic surgery, um, and complications. And that's where I became interested in ERAS because I, I thought, well, maybe complications just happen. You can't do anything about it. Pancreas surgery is a big deal. Some people are going to get sick, and even some patients will die after that operation. And that's an inherent risk to the surgery. And that's when I be, then I, I heard about these enhanced recovery programs, largely for colorectal surgery. And I thought, well, what about that for complex GI patients? Can we change the cost of care by changing the complications? That is, some things are inherent. And that's the idea of appropriate and inappropriate variation. That patients will have complications, and sometimes that is appropriate variation, and sometimes they will have complications because we didn't adopt all the best practices. And I propose this to my partners who are, you know, on there's a, I, I took this also a leadership seminar for a year before I did the quality thing, and uh, one, of the, one of the things I really liked was a session on change. Yeah. And uh, I didn't realize, I, you assume, as we all do, that everybody's similar to us, but we live in different quadrants, you know, and different spectrums. And I'm a pretty change-oriented person. I like change. Um, my partners are on the other, we're on the other extreme. So and I suggested that we all adopt this ERAS program. They said, well, we've been doing it this way for a long time, and it's working just fine. Why don't you do it and prove to us that it's going to work? Interesting. And, and that's where I had started. And, and I think when I jumped onto the enhanced recovery, it's already been published in thousands and thousands of articles. So yeah. the, the practices I adopted were really pretty recognized nationally and internationally. But I think there are a couple of unique things to our practice. One is most of the studies are pretty particular, you know, colectomy, rectal cancer resection, hysterectomy, Whipple, liver, my practice is more complicated and my partner's is that as I did about 50% of what I did was pancreas surgery and 25% was liver surgery and then I did you know a fair amount of colorectal surgery so it was really a fairly mixed practice so could I apply it in that setting so what I did is I did it on my own and it was hard <laughs> because I had to engage everybody across the spectrum of care but it was also really fun and I developed an enhanced recovery program based on my view of the evidence, which is a little different than the program that we're doing here at Maine Medical Center. Yeah. Yeah, that was my own personal program. This program has some slight variations. I think it's better than what I did there. And I did it in my practice. And what I found was the patients, my mortality rate was about 3%, which would be expected for the kind of practice I had. I think it was a little below um, other high volume centers or similar. Uh, that went to zero. Uh, your, your mortality went from 3% to zero. to zero. And that was significantly different. The risk of complications decreased as well. The readmission rate decreased by over 50%, and the cost was almost $10,000 less per patient. So it was amazing. That's incredible. So then I thought, well, I spent all this time, you know, I did a, so many in-services. I met with the nurses in the office, and I met with the nurses in the pre-op area, the nurses on the general care floor. I had meetings with anesthesia so that they could change some of their practices. And I thought, I wonder, is this because of the enhanced recovery program or is it because we changed the culture in some meaningful way to incorporate these different practices and expectations around patients? So then I looked at my practice 
after enhanced recovery and compared it to my partners to say there, who did not change practice did not change practice but they were we, we had a one closed unit for surgical oncology so I thought my my hypothesis was that their patients would do better but a little less well than the patients in the program yeah and what I found was surprising to me their patient care their patient outcomes didn't change at all even though so what you're saying is that you provided training for all of the care teams around this collective group of patients. So all of these patients went to the same nursing floor, same anesthesia team, same hospitalist. So you're hoping that because these care teams got information on this enhanced recovery program, how to better care for patients, and that you saw better outcomes, maybe everyone's outcomes changed. Oh, I would think they would change a little bit, but they didn't change at all. Hmm. And from that I concluded that details matter. It's not just a change in culture, a change in expectation. It's a change in the way we care for patients. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Well, when I read through that article, I was very surprised. We're going to put it up on the show notes for sure. Um, and so, so to recap, that was that was your own program based upon your own read of the information in the published literature on ERAS. Your mortality went from three percent to zero. Length of stay changed, readmission rate changed, uh, cost dropped by $10,000. These are all incredible outcomes. And so where, where did you go from there uh, to, to now? Where, how did that shape your practice? So as I told you before, I'm a, I'm a change person. So I've been at, I was at Michigan State uh, for six years. In around five years, I, was, I got a board I had optimized that to a point where I, I thought it was running well uh, and then I, at East Carolina University right around six years that, that I'd been there I started looking for another opportunity because I felt like I you know I had a great job and I could do that same thing for the next 15 or 20 years or look for another challenge so I was looking for a leadership position uh, importantly at a place where in a in a setting where my wife and children would like to live yeah, uh, and that was a bit of a challenge, uh, and this was the perfect opportunity for me to to be a part of an academic medical center that functions well. That, as you know, is the number rated number one hospital by U.S. News and World Reports, um, but fill a, a meaningful leadership, uh, new leadership position. And, and, and I took the job as the chief of surgical oncology, which incorporates three uh, branches of surgical oncology, breast oncology, thoracic oncology, and what we call general surgical oncology that includes endocrine and these complex GI patients. And what I wanted to do when I interviewed here is I wanted to incorporate enhanced recovery into the practice of surgical oncology at Maine Medical Center. Um, and I was thinking of this as I came in, and it was coincident with an email that came from the American College of Surgeons of looking for these 100 hospitals for the Enhanced Recovery Program. Interesting. And uh, the colorectal surgeons here um, have uh, Parker Roberts in particular, but his partners were very interested in enhanced recovery and have incorporated many of their principles already and had an enhanced recovery program ready to go. And I asked if they could just hold it and then let's look at this national program and join that so that we could, and I, I think the advantage of being in a national program is that we have a hundred different hospitals adopting similar practices and our plan, do, study, act uh, cycle becomes much more powerful. That is, we yeah. can look at what, what did and didn't work, what, 
what principles that enhance recovery were beneficial for the patients and which ones maybe shouldn't we do. So then we took what, what the, the good work that had already been done here, incorporated into this national program, and it, it fit with my desire to, you know, I think we do well as individuals. We can mm-hmm. do well as individuals, but we really excel uh, and our patients do better when we, when we work in a system that has automated best practices. And that's, that's what I, was my desire to bring that in. And it worked well with the culture of the institution, the hard work that had already been done and then fell right on top of this national program that gave us, I think, a really nice vetted uh, backbone on which to build. That's incredible. So when does this program roll out at Maine Medical Center? So December was going to be November 1st. Yeah. Then we didn't quite have our stuff. Then we were going to do November 15th, but that was a Wednesday. Today. So so we decided... (laughs) That Monday, November twentieth, would be the would be the great. rollout. Great, great. And so, we're, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into the details of ERAS in just a minute. But tell us briefly about where is this enhanced recovery program starting? What kind of surgeries is it starting with? And, and where do you hope to see this go? So it's starting with colorectal, which is not which hasn't traditionally been my primary practice, but that's. The way the program has worked nationally uh, through the it's the improvement s improvement of surgical recovery and care that's the name of the national program. They have different cohorts, and the first cohort in there is colorectal, as it should be, because that's where this was born from. Yeah. The second is is orthopedics. The third is gynecology. The fourth, I believe, is acute care surgery. So we'll probably follow that rollout. Now there is no uh, specific program for complex other abdominal surgeries and I'm going my plan would be to follow the colorectal patients by about six months. That is we can start this program and then take those principles and then move them over to other complex abdominal surgeries. So I would say colorectal, other complex abdominal surgeries. The gynecologists have reached out to me as have the vascular surgeons and they're keen to move forward with an enhanced recovery program. So I think those those will also be incorporated, yeah. some in the ISCR process and some outside of it. I think we'll all look at the principles are the same. Some of the details are different. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Rounding off on quality, is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, looking at quality, analyzing quality, and how quality outcomes should shape practice? Well, I think I would just start with I, I guess I'd finish with the same thing I started with is that that this is an era of enhance is an era where we are under an intense scrutiny to improve the quality of care that we provide. It's being looked at by private groups, it's being looked at by national consortiums, and it's being looked at by the national government. So whether we like it or not, we are going to be scrutinized. And it's important. It's important for the for the United States because we don't consistently provide high quality care as we should, although we spend a lot of money doing it. It's important for the hospital because the hospital is going to be reimbursed and patients are going to be referred based on quality metrics defined by the the government of the United States and groups like LeapFrog and U.S. News and World Reports. It's important for us as individual practitioners um, because our livelihood is directly or indirectly uh, 
fixed to the place where we work. That is, patients don't come here. We don't have work to do. And then finally, and the most important, is it's the right thing mm. to do for our patients. They will, be, they will do better. They will go home sooner. They will be less likely to suffer unnecessary harm, and they'll be less likely to die. And that's why we come to work every day, or uh, that's why we should come to work every day. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much.